Hello. Thank you for listening to our big Time Talker podcast. We are everywhere now. Apple, iTunes, iHeartMedia, Blog Talk Radio, Spotify, wherever you download your podcast. Thank you so much to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. They are the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. And as we head into the new year, uh, in-person events are happening once again. If you're a meeting planner in search of a speaker or a speaker in search of a platform, you can find one another online at SpeakerMatch.com. We're talking environment today and novels and a guy that has married his passion and his career into a successful second career as a writer of environmental legal thrillers. Attorney Joel Burkett joins us from his home in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to talk about his brand new book, Strange Fire. Joel, thanks for being on the show. Burke, it's my pleasure. I, I love talking with you. Uh, likewise, we chatted about your previous novel, A Mid-Rage, that took place in the uh, the coal mining industry. And, and I guess much like uh, John Grisham, who has made a pretty successful career of writing about uh, small town Southern courtrooms, you've taken what you know about environmental law and have pinned these environmental legal thrillers. Um, your background is in doing a completely different kind of writing though. You wrote this book uh, called Pennsylvania Environmental Law and Practice that I guess is sort of a, a touchstone award winner in the state. How is it different writing those kind of technical books than writing novels like Strange Fire? Well, both books um, have sentences and the sentences have words and they have punctuation. <laughs> and beyond that, there really isn't a whole lot that's similar. So when you're writing a, a, a legal book or a technical book, uh, it's, it's a very different style than when you're writing fiction. Uh, the, there are certain expectations that readers of law books have, and that is that they want the information, they want to get it out, they want it in great detail, they want to see footnotes, they want to see, um, you know, uh, where things came from and understand, uh, you know, the nuances of the law and really do a deep dive. And uh, there's no time for fiction or for um, uh, characterization, there's no, there are no characters to speak of. Pacing is very, very different. All of the things that go into a nonfiction law book, it's very different than uh, a fiction uh, novel. And, uh, you know, writing about something in the law means that, uh, that you have to try to write it in layperson's terms that they're going to understand and that's not going to get deadly boring. And it's not to say that my other writing is deadly boring, but uh, Let's just say that uh, it, it doesn't have the excitement that my novels have. When you were uh, an environmental attorney there in Pennsylvania, were there times where you were involved in, uh, in trials, courtroom proceedings, or, or other parts of your work where you said, this is stranger than fiction, or this would make a good book? I, I wonder where the impetus came from to, to send you down the path of, of writing uh, these environmental legal thrillers. I guess I always scribbled. I mean, from the time I was a kid, I liked writing and I took a few courses in creative writing in college and I enjoyed them. And then once I became a lawyer, I just got so busy. I didn't have a chance to uh, spend a whole lot of time uh, doing the creative writing that I used to enjoy doing. I, I had a little burst of it when I turned 40 
uh, which is now uh, well over 20 years ago. And, uh, and then I got busy again and I just couldn't uh, focus on it. And then um, uh, about 15 years ago, I started, uh, I started writing creatively again in fiction. And uh, really as a, uh, just because I was stuck someplace and I had nothing to do for three days in a row and no internet access and all that I had was a laptop and I, I just took advantage of it. But yes, there are many times in a courtroom, many times in a case that something happens and, uh, and you think to yourself, wow, nobody would ever believe that something like this uh, has really happened. Uh, or there might just be little snippets. So um, I remember um, something that found its way into um, a mid-rage uh, was a snippet from the very first trial I ever attended as a brand new lawyer when I was 25 years old, uh, working for what was then called the Department of Environmental Resources. And the lawyer with whom I was uh, working, I was the second chair, she was the first chair, uh, referred to the uh, judge as Mr. Waters. And the judge stopped the proceeding and he looked at her and he says, counsel, he said, you can call me judge or you can call me your honor, but don't call me by my name. And she was flabbergasted and a little anxious. And she turned around and she said, all right, Mr. Judge. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a real thing. And I never forgot it. I incorporated that into something that happened in a mid-rage, which you may remember, because I know you read it closely. Um, and uh, But that was a real thing that had actually happened. So there are lots of little things like that, little vignettes more than anything else uh, that I've experienced. And also now uh, lawyers have come to me with their war stories, and I've incorporated some of them into my books as well. Joel Burkett is our guest today. His brand new book is Strange Fire. Uh, he writes these environmental legal thrillers. Spent many, many years as one of the top environmental lawyers in Pennsylvania. Uh, and now in his second career, he's written books about uh, the water in the Susquehanna River being contaminated. And, uh, and then a book about uh, the, the coal mining industry. The new book is about fracking. And for folks that may not follow the environment closely, what is fracking? Can you describe it? Sure. Um, hydraulic fracturing is a method used to get uh, natural gas and oil out of tight rock formations, what's known as a tight rock formation. So typically shale rock is a very hard rock, but gas and oil can be locked up in the shale. And uh, often uh, uh, what we think of as fracking, what happens is that the shale is located more than a mile below the surface of the earth. And uh, the people in the industry have figured out a way to actually drill down vertically a mile and then turn the drill so that it then goes say another mile or two miles or longer and drill a borehole all the way through that shale seam. And then there is, uh, through using uh, water pressure, they're able to crack the rock. and that cracking of the rock is known as hydraulic fracturing, uh, which has been shortened to fracking. And why is that a bad thing? Well, it depends on who you ask. Uh, of course, people in the industry say it's a great thing. And uh, if you're enjoying low gas prices today and low, uh, low oil prices at times, uh, you would think that it's a good thing. Uh, people are concerned about it because of the potential for environmental harm that arises from that. Uh, there can be times when um, the fracturing goes 
further than what the, uh, the uh, engineers at the oil and gas companies want it to go. And that can intercept, uh, it can intercept water or it can intercept other crevices in the rock. And then uh, you, you get contaminants that leach their way to the surface. Mostly what happens though, the bad part of uh, fracking really has to do with uh, the, uh, either the, the lack of cementing of the borehole or the uh, failure to cement the borehole in the proper way, which then results in the gas and chemicals uh, coming up on the outside of the, uh, the borehole itself. And that then results in the, um, the chemicals coming to the surface or worse yet, coming into and, uh, the groundwater. And that's what, that's what they try to avoid. So it really depends on who you ask. Um, if you ask people in the industry, they're gonna say it's a great thing. They're gonna say there's never been an instance when uh, there's any proven uh, fracking job that's caused uh, damage. And if you ask people who are opposed to the industry, they're going to say it happens all the time and it's contaminated water and it's uh, caused great environmental harm in many places. In your new book, Strange Fire, which is uh, due for release in February of 2022, uh, fracking on the Marcellus Shale uh, in Pennsylvania has caused the, the water to not only be contaminated, but people are dying in that town because of it. Um, and look, I know in, in every book, um, there has to be a villain, right? If you're gonna have that tension uh, in a thriller, there's gotta be a good guy and a bad guy. Your good guy is a, a young attorney named Mike Jacobs, who I, I suspect has parts of Joel Burkett in him. The bad guy um, is the, uh, the oil and gas company. Is, is, that, um, is that too broad a stroke uh, you know, when you're painting uh, with your, your your brush to to always make the the company the bad guy, isn't it? Aren't there shades of gray in that story as well? Yes, there are. And in fact, one thing that I very much try to do is to um, is to explore the gray areas. It's very easy. Uh, it's very easy to say simply that there are uh, you know that everybody in the industry is a, a, a villain and everybody on the other side is good. And what I explore in my stories are those gray areas. So obviously not everyone on the, uh, the anti-fracking side is good and not everyone on the pro-fracking side is bad. And, and I think that's much more interesting to readers because otherwise it's like a comic book. And, uh, and you open it up to page one and you say, oh, well, here's the, here's the good guy. Uh, and he's um, he's uh, you know opposing the fracking, so therefore he's got to be the good guy. And here's the bad guy; he is the quote fracker, and so he's got to be the bad guy. So what I try to do is I try to um, I really do try to explore the gray areas, and I also try to show uh, that that everything isn't what it seems. And and I think that's really really much more interesting for the audience. So in this new book, Strange Fire, by the way, the author Joel Burkat is our guest on our Big Time Talker podcast. Uh, Strange Fire comes out in February from Headline Books. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com, wherever you get your books. Um, in, in the new book, this attorney, central character, Mike Jacobs, um, has to find himself sort of on the wrong side of things because he's defending uh, the Department of Environmental Protection's position, supporting the gas company. When when you were doing this environmental law work, did you ever find yourself on the wrong side of the issue? And if so, how do you deal with that as an attorney? That's going to be tough. 
Well, you know, again, I'm writing from Mike Jacobs' perspective, and the question is, what does Mike uh, perceive as the wrong side? And Mike is an ardent environmentalist, and uh, he, but he's working for the state agency, and the state agency takes positions from time to time that um, are not the positions that he wants to take. So in my previous book, In a Mid-Rage, um, Mike uh, was stuck in the middle of a permit battle between the mining company and the neighbors. And because the mining company had filed an appeal and because the neighbors had filed an appeal, Mike was literally stuck in the middle of that case. Now, his uh, preference would have been to have been on the neighbor's side, but uh, because he was, because of the unusual procedural posture of that case, he was stuck in the middle of the case, which was not where he wanted to be. And uh, in fact, in Amid Rage, uh, Mike goes way out on a limb to um, support the neighbors and to try and do it in a way that won't get him uh, in trouble with his, his bosses back at, in Harrisburg. And it's a very complicated tightrope tight rope that he's got to walk, walk, not the least of which because in that story, you know, he's being blackmailed. And so he's, he's really got to uh, be very careful about what he does and how he does it. And in this story, um, if you think of the different components of a, of a drilling operation, one component is the pad where the drilling operation sits. And in, on that pad is the actual drill and the borehole itself. Next to the pad is a, a, a pond of water that's constructed by the, um, uh, by the drilling company. And they use that water uh, for makeup water when they're uh, doing the actual fracking. It's supposed to be a freshwater pond. So uh, we learn very early in the story that there's a lot of pressure to put the frack water, which can contain a lot of chemicals in it, into that freshwater pond when it, the pond was emptied. And um, so the department uh, takes the position, the department is called out to take a look at the borehole itself and determine whether or not there was, uh, there was um, any kind of uh, contamination coming from that borehole. They determined that there was none but they never took a look. They weren't asked to take a look at the pad or at the uh, pond itself. So um, over time, we start to wonder and we start to suspect that perhaps uh, there was a leak in the uh, pond. So again, Mike finds himself on the wrong side of the case. The neighbors file an appeal uh, from DEP's decision that there's no contamination coming from the borehole. And by the way, they're right. There was no contamination coming from the borehole. DEP's own geologists said that. Where they start to believe that there was contamination was uh, from that pond. So Mike again finds himself on the wrong side because of the unique posture of the case. The neighbors filed an appeal from the decision, which meant that DEP was defending the position of the uh, drilling company. And to make it more interesting, uh, Mike's nemesis all the way going back to law school a, another lawyer called Darius Moore who works for Finkel and Update Updike the uh, the uh, New York, the uh, DC law firm he's the lawyer representing uh, Finkel and Updike and representing the drilling company and the two of them have to work together so Mike is stuck on what he considers to be the wrong side of the case working with a guy that he really never likes who doesn't like him uh, working for a big law firm who who is thrilled to be known as FU uh, to the world. And, and so Mike ends up on the wrong side of that case. Mike Jacobs, the central character in uh, the new book, Strange Fire by Joel Burkett. Um, if you love legal thrillers, if you're a fan of 
uh, of John Grisham or Daniel Baldacci or, or any of those uh, authors, uh, Michael Conley, I think you're going to love this book. And uh, Joel writes about what he knows, and that's environmental law and fracking. Great answer, but you didn't tell me, did you ever wind up on the wrong side of a case in your long legal career? And, and if so, how did you deal with it? Well, you know, uh, I've, I've represented all kinds of clients. I've represented clients from Fortune 50 uh, corporations to individuals, and I've represented people with all different kinds of interests. And I always felt that what I was doing was the right thing, uh, that, uh, that sometimes you found that the agency, whether it was DEP or EPA, had gone way over and above their legal authority or had uh, taken positions that were very, very extreme. Uh, sometimes uh, the client really didn't do anything wrong, and it was a question of interpretation of the regulations. And uh, very often, one thing that, that people don't realize is that the biggest corporations aren't merely hiring um, hired guns. They're also looking for people with a particular perspective who have a great relationship with the agency. And you only have a great relationship with the agency when you have integrity. And I believe I had a lot of integrity with uh, the agencies, DEP and EPA. And so it was more than just that I was a knowledgeable environmental lawyer, but that I had integrity with those agencies. And while I didn't agree with what my clients were doing, I could see that there were times when the agencies had just gone above and beyond what was being required of them. So I represented clients that I think people would um, uh, maybe have issue with, but I always felt as though I was doing the right thing and pushing back on uh, overreach by government agencies. In the court system in America, you know, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty and everyone deserves their day in court. Um, have there been times when you sort of had to, to hold your nose and go in there knowing that, that it's your job to provide, uh, you know, wise counsel to your client, but, but your heart just wasn't in it? And, and I'm fascinated by how, how attorneys do that. You know, you see uh, guys in criminal cases that have to represent just heinous, uh, you know, rapists and murderers, and yet they deserve to have the day in court. How does an attorney do that, Joel? I, fortunately, I never faced that problem. I always felt as though my clients were, um, if they were being honest with me, uh, were, were doing the right thing. I did have uh, a couple of clients that I fired, literally fired, because I felt that they had lied to me. And that was a very, to me, that was always a red line, and that if the client lied to me about something, and it was something significant, you know, I wasn't going to work with them. And it didn't matter how much they wanted to pay me in legal fees. But there were uh, two occasions that I can think of right now where I had to fire clients and um, a couple of occasions where I had um, some woodshed meetings with some clients where I had uh, discussions with them about what what they were doing and what they weren't doing. And uh, so there were there were a number of times when I really had to um, uh, have those very stern discussions with my clients. Um, I always felt, though, I was I was doing the right thing again, you know, as I said before. When, uh, when a client hired me, they, they knew my perspective on things. They knew that I had a pretty strong perspective. And uh, they had, uh, you know, a big, the bigger the client, the more investigation of their lawyer that they do. So yeah. they, don't just, they don't just take a look on TV or open the book or whatever and take a look. Oh, here's a lawyer. Up. We'll hire him. But they actually do a very, very thorough evaluation. And then you find out later on that you had uh, friends who were called and, 
And uh, it's not quite the same thing as being investigated by the FBI for a, a background check, uh, but they do a lot of looking into you and, and uh, make sure that you're the right kind of guy. So the right kind of guy is a guy who has a good relationship with the agency, and that relationship is built on years and years of common trust and years and years of integrity. A lot of suspense in this book. It's a legal mystery thriller, an environmental thriller called Strange Fire. Joel Burkett is the author. The publisher's headline books. The book is available on February 2nd, and you can pre-order it now um, online, and it'll be uh, ready for you as soon as it's dropped. Um, I remember about, gosh, I don't know, 10 years ago, Joel, there was a movie with Matt Damon called Promised Land, and it it, uh, took place in and around the fracking industry. And uh, as I recall, it's been a while, but but Matt Damon's character, along with Francis McDormand, uh, sort of worked for this this company, and they rolled into this small town uh, where they were going to make offers on on uh, land, uh, and they just pretty much assumed everyone would would uh, you know snap that money up because the town was declining financially. Uh, but there was some pushback from uh, an environmentalist uh, in town, played by John Krasinski, and I think there was a, a school teacher, Hal Holbrook, played a school teacher who who did some pushback too. Um, where in the overall scheme of things, as we enter 2022, is the public opinion on fracking? Is it, uh, does it lie on the side of the company? Does it lie on the side of the environmentalist? And, and how important a part of our current energy mix is fracking right now? I think the question has to be asked about where, where you are. What, what geography are we talking about? Okay. So if you talk to uh, if you talk to people in uh, New York and Vermont and Maryland, those states have banned fracking, and uh, presumably uh, the the governors of those states, when they banned fracking, you know, uh, did what politicians always do: they look around to see what the public wants, and uh, they're going to try and do something that is popular with the public. So New York, Maryland, and Vermont, at least. By the way, Vermont's an interesting case because they don't have any natural gas, but they all banned fracking. Uh, Pennsylvania has not banned fracking. Wait, and- wait a minute. Hold on a second. So Vermont banned fracking, even though there's no fracking happening. Correct. They could have also bland, uh, banned polar bear hunting. Okay, got but, it. So uh, this, that was all for show in Vermont. Yeah, I think it was. I mean, they were making a political statement uh, that they that they were opposed to fracking. By the way, none of those states banned the natural gas or the oil that comes from fracking, but they did ban fracking in those states. Now that, so far as New York and Maryland were concerned, that did have a huge economic impact. The um, western two counties of uh, Maryland have a uh, large, large deposits of Marcellus gas, and the southern counties of New York also have large deposits of natural gas. So uh, there was uh, not a unanimous position in New York and Maryland about that. Uh, But again, I think you have to ask geographically, where where am I? So I presume that if you're talking to the majority of people in New York or Maryland, that they would be opposed to it. And likewise, in Pennsylvania, I think you would find that there's a mix. So if you're in the parts of Pennsylvania that benefit from fracking and from natural gas. I think you'll find that there are many people who support it. And you're also going to find that there are many people who are opposed to it. So you mentioned that movie Promised Land. And as you pointed out correctly, there are people in that movie who are very much in favor of it, and they're going to make a fortune off of it. 
and then there are um, you know people who realize that it's changing the uh, the neighborhood it's going to change the groundwater and and have other impacts and so they're they're opposed to it and uh, you know if you look across Pennsylvania as a good example you know Pennsylvania has really very large swaths that have that have Marcellus gas, the northeastern part of the state, the northern part of the state, the western part of the state have huge, huge uh, natural gas industries. And I suspect there are many people there who support it. But once you get into uh, the cities, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and southern Pennsylvania, again, where there's no natural gas, where there's no impact, uh, I think you'd probably find that there are a large number of people who oppose it. Um, but like I said, I think I think it really depends on geographically where you are. If you take a look at uh, the national statistics in this day and age, the um, nationally, uh, the majority of our natural gas and oil come from fracking of those deposits. It's it's a technique. It's a technique that is used to open up uh, uh, the deposits that have oil and natural gas in it. So. Um, much of the natural gas and oil these days is, has been, quote, fracked. So I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask because this is your area of expertise. Is the reason that fracking has become such a big thing in these last 20 years is because it is so much less expensive to get the energy out if you frack than to do the old-fashioned drilling? It's not that it's less expensive because there is an expense involved in it. It's that you literally can't get the gas unless you frack these deposits. So Marcellus- The only way to get in there then. Right. I mean, I, I happened to see the statistics a long time ago and almost, although the Marcellus Shale has been well known for a long time to geologists in Pennsylvania and they knew that it contained natural gas, practically speaking, you couldn't get the gas out because the, 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 the rock itself was so tight that the gas was just bound up in the rock. And the only way you can get the gas out is to fracture it. And the way you do that underground is using hydraulic fracturing, hydraulic pressure that causes the rock to break. So you physically could not get the gas out of those uh, formations unless you fracked it. So in a way, I guess you could say it's, it's less expensive, but also in a way it's a sort of a different answer. And that is that you can't get the gas out of those formations unless you frack it. And with a lot of formations that are, so for example, there are many formations that traditionally uh, were not fracked. They find that if they go back later on and they hydraulically fracture those formations, it will un unleash and, and loosen and allow uh, to come to the surface, the oil and the natural gas that are in those formations that, that were locked up in those rocks. So it, it enables uh, the drillers to be able to bring the gas and the natural and, and the oil uh, to the surface. Joel Burkett is our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast. His new book is Strange Fire. comes out in early 2022. It's about the, uh, the fracking industry. It's a courtroom legal thriller, uh, environmental legal thriller that uh, is being published by Headline Books. Joel, uh, several years ago, I found myself in a tiny town on the uh, Pennsylvania-West Virginia border, uh, celebrating their their bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of this this little town. I've never been there before, and um, as it turned out, I got there during the height of fracking. And uh, for people who are listening from other areas that may never have found themselves in in that area where the Marcellus Shale is, I cannot overstate the economic importance to that little town 
when I got there. I, I know the, the guy that, that picked me up owned a an old farm that had been farmed out and was completely worthless until um, the, the, the frackers came along and, and offered him an ungodly amount of money that was going to set up his family for generations to be able to frack on that land. Um, the, there was no hotel in town. And so uh, an, an entrepreneur had taken over an old, uh, very large home and had converted that into a hotel for, uh, for all these, these uh, workers who had come in. And, you know, there were work boots lined up out front. There was, there was no room, literally no room in the end. And so many of them had come from states all over the country. The, even the, the locals couldn't keep up with the number of workers they needed. And, and you had workers who had come in from, I think they told me, 26 different states who were living in, in uh, temporary uh, trailers in like a Walmart parking lot. Uh, it was as close, I think, as I would ever come to what I visualize as those gold boom towns back in the late 1800s. So the, the economic impact on small town Pennsylvania, small town Western Maryland, uh, before it was outlawed, uh, it's immeasurable, right? It is. And if you took a look at the economic map of Pennsylvania, say in uh, 2000, uh, really just before the uh, Marcellus Shale boom began, and you, you took a look to see what were the poorest, uh, most underpopulated counties in Pennsylvania, you would look across the northern tier and the western part of the state and parts of the central uh, of central Pennsylvania, and you would see that these were the, uh, the counties that, that time had passed, you know, that there was very little economic activity. A lot of that activity, um, you know, the, the work that people could get really didn't pay very much. It was, it was where the highest number of uh, poor people lived. And so uh, it was really a, a very desperate situation for a lot of people there. Not many jobs, you know, the farms. Also in that area, just coincidentally, when you're looking at northern PA or parts of western PA, they were not the best farms ever. But, you know, people were farming there and really scraping by. When... Uh, fracking came along. Now, fracking is defined by geology and geography. And so the places where the fracking took place, where the Marcellus Shale uh, was located, uh, was exactly the same area. It was the northern tier. It was the western part of the state and parts of the central part of the state. And it was almost as though God had come along and said, all right, you know, I'm going I'm to challenge you folks because now this area that's been the poorest part of the state could theoretically be the, um, the, the richest part of the state. And, and that's, that's what happened was that uh, those companies came along and uh, really reversed the fortune of many people uh, in those areas of the state. Now, keep in mind, not everybody benefits uh, from fracking in those parts of the state. And many people uh, really were hurt uh, by fracking when it came in and are still hurt to this day. Because as you pointed out correctly, you could have a town that had a population of a thousand people and all of a sudden 10,000 workers from Oklahoma and Texas and Arkansas show up and other places like that. And not only did they take over you know, the, uh, the recreational vehicles that they bring in for them to live in, but they also take up the rental housing. And so if you were renting an apartment in, uh, in that little town in in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, and you were renting an apartment, say, for $250 a month, and now the owner of that apartment can get $2,000 a month for that payment, for that apartment, well, you might have found yourself, you know, out on, out on the street. And that did happen quite a bit. So um, 
you know, there were good and bad things as a result of it, but that part of Pennsylvania that uh, has the Marcellus Shale, as underlined by the Marcellus Shale, is exactly the same part of the state that was really the poorest part of the state as well. Joel Burkett is an environmental lawyer. He also writes these legal thrillers. A new one, Strange Fire, uh, takes place in and around the fracking industry as his central character, a young attorney named Mike Jacobs, uh, wades into the fray. Um, in the coal industry that I'm very familiar with from growing up in Southern West Virginia, there was always a challenge with extraction companies um, coming into a, a market, not spending an awful lot there to help the residents. Um, and then when it was all mined out, they were gone, leaving a mess behind. Uh, in the fracking industry, I wonder if that's the same thing where they come in, they frack it, they get the oil out, the natural gas out rather, and and, and then they're gone and uh, they leave behind a big mess, including a, a screwed up water supply in that town. Is there a history of that happening? It's probably too soon to say. I mean, if you look at the history of West Virginia or Pennsylvania, uh, if, if you only start with the coal industry, you're, you're really starting towards the end of the book. Go all the way back to, um, you know, the original farmers that came in who logged all the way down to the streams causing a lot of silt to go into those streams and really ruining those streams or putting dams on those streams uh, for mills and the like, which caused those streams to silt up or the um, canals that came in. You know, we think of canals as being quaint places where if there's a little restaurant overlooking the canal today, why that's just the place where you want to take your sweetheart and have a drink and, uh, and hopefully there's an inn nearby. But, you know, back in the 1850s and 1840s, when a canal came through, that, that was heavy industry. That was some of the heaviest industry that you could imagine. And what came through a, a couple of dozen years later were the railroads. And often the railroads followed the, the uh, same locale as the, um, as, the, uh, as, the as the canals did, followed sometimes directly on the towpath. Uh, after that, you had uh, heavy duty lumbering and you had um, the tanning industry uh, that stripped uh, these, these uh, the, the, uh, the landscape completely bare. And uh, after that, you had, especially in, in uh, parts of West Virginia and Western PA, you had the old original oil industry that came in in 1859. Let's not forget Colonel Drake. And uh, that had a huge impact. So there's been, over the years, um, many, many impacts that have come and gone. And uh, it has taken a long time for these areas to, um, to recover from that. Coal mining has a devastating impact because if you, if you leave off the top of a mountain and throw it down into the valley, as they do in places in West Virginia, it's always going to look like that unless somebody comes along a long time later and uh, says, you know, there's a lot of coal in that, uh, in that uh, coal refuse. Maybe we can get it out and we'll put the, the coal refuse back on top of the mountain where it started. Um, but there's a long-term impact. One thing that the regulators have tried to do, both in Pennsylvania and West Virginia and other states, so far as natural gas is, I know that they're very intent on trying to avoid the problems that existed with the coal mining industry, but also those other industries that came before it. And one thing that I know that they've been trying to do is to require adequate bonds uh, to make sure that if a company disappears, it's, it's going to be able to... Uh, uh, that the state will be able to come in and, uh, 
and repair the uh, land from the devastation, uh, that they've been trying to regulate it much more strictly than the coal industry was ever regulated or these other industries were ever regulated uh, to prevent uh, the things that occurred in the past. So um, hopefully uh, when uh, the gas industry moves on and eventually it will move on, if it doesn't move on altogether, it will move on in, in places where the, the gas is, is no more. Hopefully what will happen is that those, land, those areas will be able to be returned uh, to something resembling the way it looked before the gas industry was there. I mean, the jury is obviously still out so far as that's concerned. What do you want people to take away from Strange Fire? At the end of the day, do you want them to learn something or do you want to entertain them? A little of both. I want them to learn something and I want, I want to entertain them. Obviously, um, you know, I've written a thriller and, um, you know, fingers crossed, it'll be a New York Times bestseller. I'd love to entertain people. Um, but at the same time, I really would like people to learn something about the whole industry and, and hear it in a way that I, that I believe tries to present things in an even-handed way. And, um, you know, there are times when there are things that just can't be even-handed. There are times that, that there are things that are just plain wrong. And, uh, and I pointed that out in my book through my fictional characters. And there are times that things are right. And I've also pointed that out through my fictional characters. There are a lot of conspiracy theories. There are a lot of, um, of uh, uh, you know, misconceptions and, and the like. And, and I try to identify all of those in my book. And the other thing I try to do in my book is I really try to educate people regarding what is this fracking uh, that we've been talking about. If you talk to people in the industry, they rarely use the word fracking because fracking only means to them that one part of the job where they actually hydraulically fracture the, uh, the seam, the seam of uh, shale. But if you talk to almost anybody else, they refer to fracking as, as everything from the time the company shows up until it leaves, it's all fracking. So I try to point out in my story, I try to educate people as to all of this. And uh, a couple of early reviews that I've gotten from some great, great writers have identified the, uh, the educational aspect of my book. And I tell you, my book is educational uh, the way that uh, The Hunt for Red October is educational about submarines. And um, I don't think people read The Hunt for Red October because they wanted, to, um, uh, they wanted to learn about submarines. They read it because Tom Clancy wrote a damn fine book about, uh, you know, about a uh, Russian uh, admiral who wanted to defect uh, to the United States. So, um, oh, I should have said spoiler alert. <laughs> but, uh, but the, um, you know, but you learned a lot about submarines. You learned a lot about American submarines, nuclear submarines, and, and all of that naval stuff. And so I'm, I'm trying to do the same thing in all of my stories, and that is to educate, but at the same time, really entertain people. And I think uh, you're going to accomplish that based on your first two books, Drink to Every Beast and A Mid-Rage in the environmental legal thriller genre. Mike Jacobs is the, the lead character. And I'll leave you with this. How much of Mike Jacobs is Joel Burkett? Uh, how much of Joel Burkett is Mike Jacobs? Um, Mike represents my better angels at times. And there are times when Mike does things that uh, that uh, he's not too proud of, that I suppose there might even be a little bit of me in the, that as well. Mike also has little bits of and pieces of a bunch of other people uh, who I, I found had interesting tidbits. But uh, I'm, I'm going to admit that there's some of me and Mike and there's some of Mike and me. 
I think you're going to love this new book, Strange Fire. It takes place in and around the fracking industry in a small town in peril. Attorney Mike Jacobs comes in to try to save the day. Joel Burkett is the author. Uh, and do I have this right, Joel? The book is available now for pre-order. comes out February the 2nd, right? It will be available shortly for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, I'm not quite sure when my publisher is going to put it up, but I, I know that the uh, galleys are done and the cover is done. So it's really just a question of timing as to when uh, they'll be able to get that up. But it'll be very soon, maybe by the time this uh, podcast is out. And the book officially releases February 2nd, Strange Fire, from award-winning author Joel Burkett. Joel, best of luck on it. hope it's a bestseller for you. Oh, thank you very much, Burke. And thank you for listening to our Big Time Talker podcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, iHeartMedia, Spotify, Apple iTunes, wherever you subscribe. If you like what you heard, tell a friend. And thank you to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. Wherever you go, whatever you do, get out there and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.